Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. A grey bundle of fur stirs in the fork of the tree. At first, it appears completely spherical. No head, no face, no ears, no limbs, just a round grey lump. Slowly, like poorly folded origami that will not stay tucked in, a black-tipped foot, then a leg, straightens out on one side of the trunk. A tremor runs across the fur, a series of tiny twitches and shudders, as if in response to the irritation of an invisible insect. She ignores the quarrelsome chatter of honey-eaters and robins around her, the long screech of a cockatoo rejoining its flock, the fluid warbling of magpies, the tink of bell miners, the sharp crack of whipbirds across the gully and the gobble of a wattle bird from below all merge into the ambient hiss and sigh of the brittle gum leaves rattling in the wind. A pied currawong peels across the valley, fading into the distance. She's listening for something else. A deep rumble in the far distance, drawn as if from the back of the throat, up through the belly and expelled, with every lungful of air into a deep, wheezing, bellowing sigh. It is faint, like distant thunder. The koala listens until the call fades out and disappears. It's time to go. She clambers down the broad trunk onto the ground and heads east in the direction of the call. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Danielle Clode is a biologist and natural history author. Her books include Killers in Eden, Voyage to the South Seas, The Wasp and the Orchid, and In Search of the Woman Who Sailed the World. Today, I'm talking to Danielle Claude about her latest book, Koala, A Life in Trees. Danielle, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Koala, A Life in Trees isn't what I expected of a book on koalas. The factual sits very comfortably beside the descriptive. You're a scientist, a biologist, so I was expecting a purely factual account of the koala, but this book is far more personal and conveys a deep affection for the koala. You write about them as if they're family. Well, I guess I live in an area where there are lots of koalas. So, you know, I, I share my home with them really in the Adelaide Hills, which is a pretty fortunate place to be. Unlike kangaroos, that other icon of Australian fauna, not many Australians have actually seen a koala in its natural habitat. How widespread are they today and how does that compare with their distribution in the past? Well, historically, their um, distribution has been from the far north Queensland down through the forests along the east coast of Australia, across Victoria and into the edge of South Australia. But their population today is quite patchy. So they've, they've been through a lot of population difficulties with the reduction in forests since European settlement. Um, so they're really strongly associated with, with remnant forest areas. And there's a lot more of them in the southern states of Victoria and now South Australia um, than there are further north. So, so it's a very patchy distribution and there's quite dense populations in some areas um, and very, very dispersed populations elsewhere. 
You say there are an estimated 150,000 living in the Adelaide Hills and the Mount Lofty Ranges, which is, I think, is the dense population you were just referring to, while populations elsewhere aren't doing nearly as well, perhaps as low as 80,000. Now, I was just thinking if there were less than 250,000 humans on the planet as a species, we'd be in deep trouble. Are they in deep trouble? It's all relative. I mean, when when we've got um, other species that are down to just a couple of hundred, um, they really are in dire straits. So um, koalas are certainly in trouble in certain areas. So along the New South Wales and Queensland coast and, and forest, they're in really dire straits in areas there and local populations are definitely in danger of going extinct and have gone extinct in local areas. But as a species, then they're not too badly off. They are capable of breeding back up quite quickly, even from small numbers. But the question is if they've got the forest to live in, that's the main problem they have. You talk about them or you use the term functionally extinct. What does that mean? That's a term that's often used in conservation circles. It Technically, it refers to a species that might still be alive. So you might have a single individual, for example, but there's no prospect of that individual being able to reproduce. So say when you have the last male rhinoceros of uh, the species, for example, it's not extinct, but it's functionally extinct because it can't reproduce. Um, koalas are often described as being functionally extinct, but that, that's not technically correct. It's used to mean that if we don't do something serious about protecting them, they, they are likely to go extinct. But from a conservation biology point of view, they're, they're quite a long way off that yet. So let's talk about the history, the ancient history of the koala. They're part of this genus called vombatiforms, and that family includes wombats. That's the closest living relative of the koala. But I was surprised to learn that koalas have another close relative, the extinct marsupial, the diprotodon. We tend to think of koalas and wombats are the only living members of that family now, so we, we tend to think of those two as being the distinctive animals. But if we actually look at the extinct members of that family, we get a much more diverse family. Um, and diprotodons, you know, are the, were the biggest of the Australian marsupial megafauna, so these were, you know, two-ton animals the size of a small four-wheel drive car. So um, great big, huge grazing animals, which um, definitely gives you a different impression of the koala and wombat family. Ancient koala fossils, as I understand from your book, are quite rare. Sometimes you come upon little more than a tooth or a, a jaw to work from. How do you reconstruct the history of a species from so little? Look, it's a very tricky area and, and paleontologists devote their careers to doing this sort of work. It's amazing how much you can tell from teeth. It's lucky we can tell a lot from teeth because they're the hardest part of an animal's body. The enamel teeth are really, really resilient, so they're the things that tend to survive in the fossil record. And fortunately, they're very, very characteristic of particular species, so teeth are distinctive in terms of what family they belong to and who their close relatives are, but also distinctive of what different species they belong to, so they vary as well. They're quite good at being used for identifying um, different types of animals. So, so that gives us an insight into um, the family tree, the history of koalas and how they evolved. But there's not a lot you can tell from teeth other than they're giving you an indication of the rough size of the animal and also the type of food it's eating. So they're the two key pieces of information you get from that. And what are the chances of finding a complete skeleton of a fossil koala? That's a good question. Um, koala fossils are 
very rare, have been very rare in, in, the, in the fossil record, but there's also a lot of potential material out there. It just requires a great deal of effort and good luck to find it. So we'll just have to keep our fingers crossed for that one. One of the richest sources uh, of koala fossils is in Riversley in the Bujumala National Park. What is so significant about Riversley? Riversley is up in far north Queensland, in inland Queensland, just below the Gulf of Carpentaria. Um, and it's a really remarkable um, location. While it's, while it's a dry desert area now, in the past, it was a, a dense forest, rainforest area. Riversley is a really amazing fossil site. Uh, it's a really rich source of a lot of modern Australian mammal species. So the origins of a lot of um, Australia's mammals can be found there and also birds and, and other animals as well. So it's just, it's a particularly biodiverse and rich area with a really quite an extended fossil history so um, that makes it a really good resource it gives you particular individual species but it also gives you the whole cohort the whole ecology um, because there's so many other fossils in the same location and through a period of time so it's a really great snapshot into Australia's past. You use the term time dwarf to describe the koala what do you mean by that term time dwarf? Time dwarf is a term used by paleontologists to investigate the issue of whether species shrank over time. So the period of the megafauna was characterised by a very large species. And it's always a bit of a question for paleontologists about whether large the large species died out, you know, like the, the woolly mammoth in the northern hemisphere, for example, or whether they simply shrank in size and became smaller. Um, and kangaroos are a good example of this. There's a big question about whether the giant red kangaroos are a different species or whether they have simply shrunk over time. And, and the same um, question has been applied to koalas. Phascolarctos yorkensis, that's one of the giant fossil koalas. Tell me about Phascolarctos yorkensis. When I first read about this fossil, I thought it must be from, from Cape York in the north where a lot of fossil koalas were found. And then I was really excited to discover that it was actually York Peninsula, which is in South Australia, which is very close to home for me um, and somewhere where I have used to go on holidays quite a lot. This specimen was found in a in a cave um, on York Peninsula. It was a, a jawbone that was three times the size of a um, normal koala uh, fossil, so um, quite a chunky, big animal. We often have issues with fossils being regarded as giants. You know, people like to find giant versions of animals. Um, so there's always a lot of question about exactly how big things are. But this one does indeed seem to have been about three times bigger than the koalas we get today. I'd like to talk about the habitat of koalas. And the history of koalas is also to some degree the history of our forests, especially eucalypts, ash, box, bloodwood, messmate, manna, iron bark and peppermint. How does the history of these magnificent trees reflect the history of the koala? Evolution of eucalypts is really central to understanding the evolution of koalas. We've got a great diversity of, of eucalypts in Australia, and that probably reflects the quite distinctive and erratic climate oscillations that um, Australia has experienced in the past. So the, so the forests have over time shrunk and fragmented and then regrown again in, in wetter cycles. So that has meant that a lot of eucalypts have speciated or separated out into many, many different species. And that gives us the 900 species of eucalypts that we have in Australia. And that's posed a really unique challenge for 
koalas who have specialised on those eucalypts. Um, eucalypts are really hard to eat for animals. They're, they're, they've got a lot of toxins in them and they tend to make mammals feel sick if they eat them. So you have to have a very specially adapted stomach and, and digestive system, which, which koalas have been able to master, along with a couple of other animals. Ringtail possums are good at eating eucalypts too. But um, that poses unique challenges when every tree eucalypt species has a different array of toxins and a different structure to the leaf that needs to be broken down uh, in order to extract the nutrients. So koalas have had to be very adaptable in um, being able to break down different species of eucalypts. I think most Australians uh, recognise a eucalypt, or we just call them gum trees, I think, for convenience. But I'm just wondering how a koala can tell one from the other. That is a great mystery, but they are very, very particular about which ones. Not only are they particular about which species they eat, and, and most koalas will eat three or four species um, in their area, maybe up to as many as 10 in some areas, but they're also particular about which individual tree they eat from as well. So they will eat from some trees and not others. They'll eat from a tree one day, but not another day. Um, and that's probably reflecting the different nutrient values and toxin levels that are in the leaves at any particular time on any particular part of the tree. Um, nobody really knows what it is that makes koalas eat particular leaves, but the koalas know very clearly <laughs> which ones they like and which ones they don't. Let's turn from what they eat to what they drink. So koala, as we understand it, is the Indigenous term meaning no drink. But your book reveals that that's not entirely true. And in fact, there are many Indigenous words to describe the koala. What is the koala's real relationship with water? Well, that's a really interesting thing. I mean, obviously, koalas are renowned for not needing to drink very often uh, or, or for getting most of their moisture from leaves. But in actual fact, they're very dependent on water, if not directly, certainly on the forests that are supported by water. So they typically favour trees that grow in riverine habitats. Um, the, the classic tree that nearly all koalas quite like is the river red gum. Um, and, and that's sort of, you know, symbolic, if you like, of their relationship with wet forests. Um, they do best in wet forests. They can, they can live in drier areas, but the trees they like are the ones that, that do have a lot of water content uh, and, and like a lot of water. So, so I actually think water is really important for koala survival. When the East Coast was flooded and a lot of people were obviously displaced by rising sea levels and had to move inland, and that would have been a period of great um, unrest and, and problems for, for Indigenous communities. Um, there are stories of the koala being the, the, the character or the dreaming spirit that assists them in that move and that, that transition. Um, and a lot of that's, you know, people often talk about that as um, understanding ecological balance and how humans can need to respond and adapt to ecological balance in, in, a, in a changing environment. So, you know, arguably those stories have quite a lot of um, information for us now when we, when we face similar problems of our environment being out of balance. Let's talk about the behaviour of koalas. Now, we often think of koalas as slow-moving, sleepy, even sloth-like. They don't appear to be built for the sprint or any physical activity for that matter. Eating and sleeping, eating and sleeping, that seems to be the rhythm. Exactly how athletic are koalas and what's under all that cuddly fur? It's true, they do spend a lot of time sleeping and, and this has led to a lot of myths about them, you know, being 
stoned or poisoned by their toxic diet that, you know, eucalypts make them slothful. Um, in actual fact, I think that koalas sleep most of the time because they can. Uh, <laughs> they're surrounded by food. Um, they don't need to move large distances very frequently. And more importantly, they're relatively safe from predators. So their safer strategy is to sit still in the tree um, and sleep. Uh, and, wh and while they're sleeping, they're digesting their food. Uh, that's not to say they're slothful. Um, I know koala researchers have told me that if you... Um, approach a, a sleeping koala in a tree and, and give it a poke, you'll get a very fast reaction. <laughs> it probably won't be a good one. Um, and when you do see them active in the in the you know small percentage of time they're awake, they're quite athletic and, and agile and, and they can move quite quickly when they want to. Koalas in captivity, are they easy to care for in captivity? And uh, are they able to form bonds with humans when kept in captivity? Technically, koalas, you know, they don't need a lot. They need, they need trees to climb and they need eucalypts to eat, but they need fresh eucalypts and a lot of eucalypts every day. So they're actually, uh, they're actually surprisingly hard to keep in captivity. They really do need a forest to support them. So that makes them one of the most expensive animals to keep overseas, outside of Australia, of all the captive animals, which is quite remarkable. Um, I think in Japan um, there was some comments about the, the cost of keeping one koala in the zoo was more than the, the salary of the town mayor. <laughs> or something like that. So so they're really quite expensive, but that's because of their need for eucalypts. And a lot of the zoos now have large plantations of eucalypts purely to feed the koalas. And they, they need, you know, hundreds of trees for each koala to provide it with food for the year because they are so picky. You think you've got some good food for them and they just decide, nope, that's that's not that's not tasty they're not eating that so um, that makes them quite expensive but they are enormously endearing animals um, most keepers love looking after koalas they do require a lot of cleaning up they, they do lots of droppings that have to be cleaned up every day but that's not particularly onerous and, and they are they can be very affectionate especially young koalas are particularly affectionate so and that, and that does make them very popular I think with wildlife carers there's so much more to learn about koalas in this book, from their love life right through to their social life. Many listeners might have seen that extraordinary footage of koalas taking water or taking shelter with humans in times of distress, particularly uh, when bushfires are around. Now, that seems contrary to their solitary and independent nature. Is there any explanation as to why they seek out humans? Why do they seem to trust us and take confidence in our care when really we're probably their number one enemy? Yes, it's a good question. But they do have an unusual temperament for a wild animal. They will certainly avoid people. Koalas are certainly not particularly approachable in the wild, but they also don't appear to be enormously bothered by people especially if they're in a tree you know and, and relatively safe and they do periodically especially young koalas that are moving through an area will often you know wander into a house or into a garden and, and take water from a bucket or if they're not feeling well they they seem to if they're unhealthy they sometimes seem to come down to look for water sometimes that can be a sign of kidney disease where they're, where they're struggling with their water intake um, so there's a number of reasons for that. I think the fact that then they're, they're not particularly 
afraid of predators, um, probably because they're mostly safe in their trees. That makes them react differently to other animals. It's an ambivalent relationship. They, they, they're both approachable and not approachable. Um, it, it's more a lack of concern about humans than an actual attraction to them, I think. My final question to you is about their future. Um, the koalas are clearly in trouble as a species and it's pretty much all our fault. What are the immediate pressures on the koala population? Habitat loss is the major factor for koalas. There's a lot of complications in that. Um, habitat loss and disruption, so fragmentation of habitats, degradation of habitats, increased predator pressures, uh, increased mortality through cars on roads, all those things have a compounding effect and they can also lead to an increase in disease um, and the impacts of disease which we're really seeing in the east coast forest in new south wales and queensland you've got that um, terrible cluster of factors where you've got uh, a lot of land clearing still going on a lot of inappropriate development in koala habitat and then you've also got the impact of two really nasty diseases of chlamydia and retrovirus that, that compound each other and make each other's symptoms worse. So, but I think at the heart of all of that, it's that it's it's symptomatic of the unhealthiness of the forests. That's really the underlying problem. And if we can protect the forests and particularly the forests around river systems, making our, our forest our river forests healthy will do a lot to protect um, koala populations and a great many other species as, as well at the same time. Danielle Claude, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I've been talking to Danielle Claude about her book, Koala, A Life in Trees. It's published by Black Ink and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.